Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Good morning and welcome to Bergen Park Church. To those of you that are here today and those that are online, it's a, the beginning of our uh, kind of snowy season. It's looking a little chilly out there. I got to tell you, yesterday... We had a group of people here, and we started putting up lights on the trees, and last night I came by the church because I was worried some of you guys might have been here Saturday night because we've been doing the Saturday night services, and we've stopped doing them, and I turn on the lights, and it's just gonna, it looks amazing. Uh, so thank you to those of you that came out and kind of helped us with that. We had some experts in exterior illumination that were uh, kind of helping us there, some Clark and W. Griswolds that we're getting things done for us. So thank you guys for doing that. And we're going to continue to do that. We've got some more trees. If you want to help us with that and you just have a passion to put lights on trees, please come talk to me. If that's where God's leading you, uh, we've got a ministry for you to, to jump into that. Hey, a couple of things. Next Sunday is our Community Give Back Sunday. That means that we receive, take products, take, uh, take donations. I'm sorry, there's the word. And give them back to our community. And this week, if you have a baby formula, diapers, pantry foods, uh, cleaning products, all of those things, you can bring them next Sunday, and we're going to distribute those out. And so that's Give Back Sunday is next Sunday. We also mentioned this coming Sunday for our kids, we have a Sunday fun day. Since we're not able to do, in, in many ways, the Halloween season and all those activities for kids, we want to provide a place for the kids to connect so they can wear their costumes, bring those uh, fun times inside. So we're going to do that 9.30 and 11. That's next Sunday, 9.30 and 11. And then November 7th, which is two weeks, we're going to be doing our Operation Christmas Child, packing the boxes that we've been collecting and the items. Uh, if When you're leaving, if you'd like to grab a box and fill that, you can do that on the way out. It's on the left-hand side. You can grab a box, uh, put some items in there, fill it up, and that's going to go across the world to... Share the gospel and also share Christ's love. But next, uh, November 7th, we're going to do a craft day. We're going to be packing the boxes from 12 to 2. And so you can find more information online or at the Connect Center and reach out uh, to us. And we'd love to uh, plug you in in those ways. Well, hey, welcome. We're glad you guys are here. Today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 13. If you want to grab a Bible, we're going to turn there. We've been in this series called Kingdom Politics. We're looking at the way that the kingdom of God and us as disciples of Jesus Christ, how we engage in ways that reflect our values as those that worship God, who are under the blood of Jesus Christ, who have the Holy Spirit within us, who rely on the word of God. How do we engage in a political season of divisiveness, of policies that are important on both sides of the issues, how do we engage in a way that really reflects what we ultimately believe? And then how do we keep our hearts pure? I don't know if you have a challenge with that. I do sometimes, keeping just my heart pure, centered on the right things, with the right attitudes. And sometimes what happens is the arguments of our day, the important issues gain a greater ascendancy or elevation on our emotions, on our heart, as we watch what's going on in our country, the division and the struggle and the hardships we can get into that in a way in which we surrender our hope to temporal hopes instead of setting our hope ultimately on our hope, which is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to start with this. You know, when Christians in the first century 
When they pronounced that Jesus is Lord, they were making a very radical political statement. When Christians said Jesus is Lord, they were in danger of death. Because see, in the first century, Caesar is kurios, and the Greek is Lord. And that was the rallying cry of the Romans, that Caesar is Lord. Now, what does it mean that Caesar is Lord? It's not that he's just your personal Lord. You know, he's my personal Lord and Savior. No, Caesar was Lord. That meant he was Lord of everything. There was not an aspect of your life that Caesar did not have authority over. That meant your money, your family, your job, even the little gods in the Roman culture that you worshiped. You could worship other gods, but you could not raise any value, any god above Caesar. If you did, there could be a penalty of death. So Christians taking Caesar is Lord, Instead, when Jesus rose from the dead, they say, no, not Caesar is Lord. The greatest authority in your life is not Caesar. Caesar does not own everything. He doesn't own your allegiances or your heart or your affection or your mind. Jesus does. So when we surrender our life to Jesus, we're not surrendering our life for heaven. We're not just trying to get out of this world to go to a better world. We're surrendering everything to him, meaning Jesus has authority over my life, my thoughts, my politics, my money, my relationships, my passions, my hope. Jesus is Lord over all things. The challenge is when we engage in a political climate like this, sometimes our affections can be set on things that rise above the lordship of Jesus. We live in a great country. We live in a country with amazing founding documents, our constitution, the Bill of Rights, These are documents that have guided us and direct us, and yet they haven't been around that long. And as a nation, the nation that we live in is a young nation. When you consider the Roman Empire lasted for 1,500 years, we're just, what, a two-year-old at this point. But there are things that we can set our hearts on that kind of rise above Jesus. So, for example, we love our country, but our love for country cannot rise above our love for Christ. And in a season like this, sometimes we can find ourselves. There are issues in our culture that are very important. And as we engage in those issues, sometimes our rights can rise above the authority of Christ. Sometimes the issues we're facing can get so important to us that they rise above the ethics of Jesus. And there's times where you simply need to say when you're watching television and you're in that moment, Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar, not Trump, not Biden, not the right, not the left, not the center, not whatever it is. Jesus is Lord. Father, be Lord over my life right now and help me to re-engage. We're gonna jump into Romans chapter 13. As we do, we're gonna discover the role that government plays for the Christian. How do we engage with government? What role does government play? What, God, what has God instituted government for? And then how should we relate as those that first and foremost raise up the banner that Jesus is Lord over our lives? So you guys ready? Let's jump in. Romans chapter 13. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 10. Romans 13. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist, they have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Who would have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for you. And if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's servant, an avenger which carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes is owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray. Father, as we jump into this passage, Lord, teach us for this moment, for this day. Guide us into all truth. And Lord, there are challenges we're facing. Right now, we pray for our our state as we're facing these wildfires, those that are servants that are out protecting property, protecting our state. Father, guide them and direct them. And Lord, for us that are gathering today, whether we're at home or in this room, Holy Spirit, use these words. Show us where our heart's allegiance may be shifting from the firm foundation of Christ as Lord to fears or anxieties or even good things, but cannot rise to the level of your glory and your power. Father, guide us into all truth we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The very simple and clear message of this passage is God has instituted government. It's his design. And did you notice the language? A little strange, right? They are servants. They are ministers of God. And see, all authority ultimately comes from God. And see, this is true in any relationship. It's true in the family. There are three main institutions God has established. There is the institution of the family. There is the institution of the church. And then third, what we're looking at is the institution of government. And the authority in the family, the authority in the church, the authority in government all reflects God's authority. Now, here's the challenge. Not all of us are good at using authority. The authority in the family gets misused. The authority in the church gets misused. And likewise, the authority in the government also gets misused. But that does not take away the reality that that authority comes from God. And those individuals, even when they fail or even when they disobey God, they are God's servant because God wants to set up a society of justice. Now, when we talk about justice, justice means right ordering. When you think in the beginning of Genesis, right? God created. He took that which was chaotic and he brought order. Justice and righteousness bring order to things. Now, righteousness could mean right standing with somebody, right relationship, but also means to live rightly. And see, God has taken government, he's taken churches, he's taken families to set up and to order things in a way that should lead to human flourishing. Again, the problem is us. 
We are always a part of families. We're always a part of churches, and we're always a part of governments. And because of that, God's perfect institutions, which he has established, begin to break down. But he's starting with this main idea, and this is the main idea of Romans 13, that God has instituted government for our good. Now, because there is sin and brokenness in the world, we have to trust God's sovereignty in these things. So a couple passages I want to run through just to enforce this. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. God changes times and seasons, but notice he also removes kings and he sets up kings. That God is sovereign over the rulers of a nation. God doesn't endorse all their behaviors. He doesn't endorse their actions, but God is sovereign. He places kings into positions and he also takes them out. Jesus repeats this theme when he was being persecuted by Pilate and standing in an unjust court. Jesus, in John chapter 19, verse 11, says to Pilate, you have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. Pilate, I know you're impressed with you. I'm not. Because behind every pastor, behind every father and mother, behind every ruler is God's authority. God's authority is over all. Jesus recognizes that. Daniel recognizes that. Paul, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, says, Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 and 14, be subject, which means to submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the governor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, jumping back to Romans chapter 13, verse 1, be subject to the ruling authorities. God has designed ruling authorities as his representatives and we as the church, as those that honor God's authority, is to, are to respect those in positions of authority as a reflection of the God that we worship and as a reflection of the God that we serve. So jump down again, Romans chapter 13, verse 2. Therefore, here's the consequence. Because they are established by God, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And whoever resists will incur Judgment, so that when we disobey the ruling authorities, they have the right to inflict punishment. Now, there is a time in which we need to disobey ruling authorities. We're going to look at that. But one of the difficulties we're going to wrestle with just for a moment is when it says, be subject to the ruling authorities. We're not living in Paul's day. We don't have Nero. We don't have a dictator. We have a democracy. And one of the challenges we really have to wrestle with and what makes this passage difficult in our context is what or who are the ruling authorities? Now, naturally, we would say it would be the president. It would be our governors. It could be the Supreme Court. It could be our laws. John Adams says it's the laws of our nation that govern us. But in some ways, as a democracy, it could be us. It could be the Constitution. It could be the Bill of Rights. The point is, in our context, it's nuanced. It requires wisdom 
as we engage into the political battles that we engage into, as we engage into this moment, what God wants for us is his commands, but also he wants a heart that's set on him, that leads out into the world with wisdom. So we have to look at the circumstances we are in, and sometimes we have to say, you know what, we need to defend the Constitution. This is a constitutional issue, but we never defend the Constitution to the extent that we take down the banner, Jesus is Lord. And sometimes we have to look at a situation and say, you know what, we're, we need to submit to the authorities that are in place because we want to show honor to who, whom honor is due. We want to respect our governor. We want to respect our senators. We want to respect our leaders. We want to respect our president. As Christians, we've got to kind of navigate that, which means we've got to have a heart that loves God above simply our nation or what we're fighting for. Do you see that? If we don't start there, then we start to get these things messed up. And sometimes pastors and Christian leaders will just hold up one authority. And, and I think in our context, it's more than one. Sometimes they'll say we're just defending the Constitution. That's it. That's all we're, we're fighting for. And if we're not defending that, then we're not submitting to authority. I, I think it's more complex than that. I think we have to look at the authorities that are in place. And as we're walking by the Spirit, right, loving God, loving neighbors, we ask the Spirit to lead us in wisdom to show us how do we honor God in the complex situations that we're in. So that's a, a big question. And pastors and, and leaders answer that in different ways. The other question we need to kind of answer is, when do we not submit? Now, that's a truly American question. We love not to submit. And we are a nation that does not submit and because of that, you know, that we've been born out of that. We, we recognize the value of rebelling against those who are in authority. And so we have to ask that question. Now, it's interesting, when you get into Scripture, Paul isn't as concerned about that as we are. Often when we see individuals not submitting to government, it's a descriptive passage, meaning it's just describing what they did. Often within Scripture, we don't, Paul doesn't say in this passage, as, as important it is to us, he doesn't kind of outline, hey, guys, this is when you need to rebel. And realize the Christians that are reading this for the first time, they are under serious persecution. The Roman government in which Paul is calling them to submit is committing genocide, in a sense, against Christians. Nero is persecuting them. They're losing family. They're losing income. They're losing their status in terms of their rights in their community. And yet Paul, in this circumstance, says to those who are following Christ, submit. Now, why? Now, if I start with my value as an American, I may kind of question that. Say, hey, I'm not going to put myself in a circumstance that's going to cause me to suffer. But see, if we simply start as Americans, as we simply start by our Bill of Rights or our rights, there's going to be a behavior that comes out of that. But when we're always under the banner, Jesus is Lord, we need wisdom because it's nuanced. Sometimes we have to recognize the response that we have is the response of the church. And the church has a unique role that's different than simply being a citizen of a nation. The church is to glorify God and to proclaim his excellencies in the world. Now, when we survey the history of the church, how has the church done that, often under persecution. God isn't as concerned. We love our religious liberties. They are good things worth defending. But when I read scripture, God isn't as concerned with our religious liberties as we are. Now, what does that mean? God is often doing something through the church when we submit to governing authorities, even if it's unjust, 
God does something to make himself known. Think of the history of the church, the first 300 years of persecution up until Constantine. The church submitted to unjust authorities. Did they push back at times? I'm sure they did. There was some wisdom in there. It's a different structure, but they submitted so that through the power of the spirit, the glory of God might be displayed and nations would stop and say, wait a minute. You are unlike any other community that worships a God. Who is this Jesus that you worship that was crucified and rose again? When the nations see that, it begins to make a seismic shift. It doesn't make sense simply from a citizen point of view or a rights point of view, but from God's work in the world, when we submit to those authorities using wisdom and nuance, God does something to display who he is and his power in the world. So let's jump back in. That's kind of a big survey. I know it's a lot to handle, but let's jump back into verse three and discover what is the purpose of government. So verse three, for the rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Now we need to stop there for a minute because sometimes they are, right? Sometimes the rulers are a terror to good conduct. There are people in our nation today say, listen, I'm innocent and yet I am afraid. That's not a good thing that we have to protect the vulnerable. So for the rules are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do good, and you will receive his approval. Verse four, for he is God's servant for your good. So, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for the evildoer. The first order of government is to restrain evil by establishing order. And we talked about that for just a little bit. The purpose of a government is to establish order for the purpose of human flourishing, as is all things in the Old and New Testament. Why did God create? He created out of chaos. He brought order. Where there was order, there was human flourishing. Where there's human flourishing, there's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God is a God of order, and out of that order, he wants his creation to flourish. Sin comes into the world. Jesus Christ comes back so that God's authority can once again reign in us and through us to bring love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to all the world. That's how God's restoring all things. He does it through order. And the greatest order comes when we surrender or submit to God's authority. And by his common grace, which means his grace that is to all people, he has set up governments to create that order. Now, Augustine captured this as an African theologian in the 4th century who wrote this classic book. I haven't read it. It's too big for me. The City of God. He called government the tranquility of order. The government is to prevent anarchy, even bad government, to create conditions in which human beings can flourish. And so the primary goal of government is to set up order. Now, remember, we talked about two other institutions. There's government. There's family. And there's the church. And so part of the good order that government is to set up is to allow the family to flourish as the family should and to allow the church to flourish. And so in 2 Timothy, Paul kind of addresses this to Timothy, a young pastor. Let's jump into 2 Timothy, I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And so Paul says to Timothy, first of all, to these evil guys who are suppressing you, I urge you that supplications, prayer, intercession, Thanksgiving be made for all people, verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, why? Why do we want to pray for those in authority? To bring about order. Watch this, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, 
godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And here's the result, who desires all people to be saved, to come under the knowledge of the truth. When the government is the government, the church can be the church, the family can be the family, and we have the blessing of carrying the good news of the gospel into the world. When the church brings about a peaceful society, I mean, when the government brings about a peaceful society, the church can be the church, people can meet Christ, and there's an opportunity for human flourishing. Now, that's a perfect scenario. So the first role of the church is the government. I mean, I keep getting this wrong. You guys are following me. The first role of the government is to bring about order. But second, second purpose of government is to promote good. Verse 3. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For God's servant is for your good. Government should bring about the good of human flourishing which means the church sometimes needs to be the conscience of the state for that which is good. So the government brings about good, but again, just like families, just like churches, we have broken officials. So the church is to be that conscience to guide the state to to speak in a way that brings about the ultimate good. So our laws should bring about human flourishing. Our laws should bring about economic good. It should bring about good for the family. It should should bring about good for the church should bring about good for individuals. It should bring about good for the world. When the government is doing what the government should, it should bring about human flourishing. And if you may remember in the story of Jeremiah, God's people were taken off into captivity and they were treated unfairly and unjust. And you would think God would say to the people there, hey, listen, just wait. You know, don't don't be nice to anyone. Don't bless the city. Just kind of hold on. I'm gonna come. I'm gonna rescue out of there. All these bad people be gone. And he said, no. In this bad circumstances, I want you to live for the flourishing of the city, the city that's persecuting you, the city that hates you, the city that despises your God. I want you to work for the good of all. Why? Because that's what God's about. Government is for the good. The church should always be for the good, regardless of how we're treated. And likewise, within families, how do we treat each other? It should always be for the good. But the reality is there are unjust leaders. So a couple passages, Psalm 94, verse 20. Psalm 94, 20. Can wicked rulers be aligned with you, meaning God, those who frame injustice by statute? There are laws that governments put out that are, in fact, unjust. And the church should address those laws. But also, Psalm 125, 3. For the scepter of the wicked of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand and do wrong. Now this is a little veiled, but when the scepter, the scepter means the ruler, and the scepter is wicked, and there are righteous people in the land, when you have a wicked ruler, it infects the character of the nation. So on the one hand, we have to fight laws that are unjust, and there are laws in our countries that are unjust but also character corrupts. And we know that, right? In families, character corrupts. Family is an institution of God. We should be for the good. I make a lot of stupid decisions. I corrupt my family. Church, likewise, church is for the good. It should create about order. It should bring about good. The fact is we have leaders within the church that are broken. We bring about brokenness. And so we know that. 
when we're with somebody of poor character, it affects character. Same thing with nations. These issues matter. As Christians, we should engage the laws. According to the values, we should also engage character. Both have a reference point. Government should bring about good, and we as Christians should promote the good both in character and in law and how we engage. And we should speak to the state in a way that brings about human flourishing as God desires it. So government brings about order. Christians need to be the conscience of the state. Purpose of government is to bring about good. But finally, third, this part we don't like, they get to write us tickets, right? They get to arrest us. They, get to, they also have the sword. That's not our responsibility. We're not going to go out in crusades. We don't carry the sword. Instead, government is to punish those who break the law. So verse 4, but if you do wrong, be afraid. And notice he's saying this to Christians who, again, are under unjust authorities and they're disobeying, which means when you disobey, realize they have the right to punish you. Even if the law is unjust, Christian, you need to submit to them both in your rebellion and in your acceptance of punishment. They will do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword is is the image of justice. And this is hard for us. He is God's servant. Again, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for the evildoer. He's not God's servant and that he always represents God, but he always represents that God wants good authorities in place. In the same way that parents don't, in the same way that pastors and leaders don't, government doesn't. So government has the right to punish lawbreakers. Here's what happens. Sometimes the government steps into the role of the church, and sometimes the church steps into the role of the government. And when that happens, when the church oversteps its bounds, its bounds is to be the people of God proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and his wonderful light and to be the conscience for the state, to speak for laws, to speak for character. But when the state jumps into certain aspects of enforcing laws, it gets weird. That's where the crusades, and that's a big picture idea, was a mess. Because here you had the wedding of the state and the wedding of the church in one, and we don't do well when it comes to wielding the sword. That's the role of government. But on the other hand, when it comes to criminal things, we, we step back. But when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to following Christ, when it comes to as Jesus said, hey, listen, you may not have committed adultery, but do you have lust in your heart? You may not have murdered, but brother, is there hatred in your heart? That's where the church steps in. The church steps in because we are covenant believers, meaning we're under this relationship with Christ. We have a covenant with one another to hold one another to the reflection of Christ and how we live. And so we may have conversations with each other once we get to know one another. It says, hey, listen, I I think this issue is breeding lust in your heart. It's going to destroy your marriage. It's going to destroy your relationships. And it could be lust for money. It could be lust for sexual lust, all sorts of things, or anger. We see this anger certainly in our political season. And we should love our brother enough to say, hey, what you're dealing with is important. I respect that you want to engage well, but I'm concerned. I'm concerned that this anger and this frustration is gaining ascendancy over Christ. Can I just say Jesus is Lord right now and love you? That's our job. But when the church starts to do that for the world, it becomes weird. If we try to put out laws concerning people's lust in their heart in terms of knowing when it's lust, when it's not lust, when is it hatred, when it's not, We have to create just laws for behavior, but when it comes to how we follow Christ, that's within the church. Outside the church, we create laws that direct behavior. The two are in different areas. So here's an example, 1 Corinthians 6.1. When one of you has a grievance against another, so this is inside the church, 
does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? When it comes to civil disputes or conflicts, we have to solve those things within the church. And that includes how we deal with politics. When we take those divisions outside the church, it ruins the witness of the church. And I'm not saying that we don't disagree. Again, we're passionate. But remember what Jesus said, I pray that they would be one. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they all be brought to complete unity so the world may know that you have sent me. There are issues and disputes that we should have in the church and we should keep within the church when we bring them outside of the church in a sense, not that we're bringing them to the legislature or to governors or things like that, but when we bring those things outside, it, it corrupts the unity of the church and the witness of the church in the world. We have to protect that. But on the other hand, there are some things in the church we have to take to governing authorities. So for example, as a pastor, if I hear about physical abuse, if I hear about sexual abuse, I don't investigate. I pick up the phone, I call the authorities and say, this is your area. This is your role. You're supposed to investigate. I surrender that to you because that is the role of the government. So what do we see? Government is to bring about order. Government is to, to bring about good for human flourishing. Government is also to punish those who are evil. So this is a pretty broad stroke, but how do we respond? So how do we respond to this? That's where verses 5 and all the way down to verse 10 come in. Therefore, so because all this is true, because God has instituted government, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes to the authorities and are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is how we engage, but then notice where he begins the shift. What do we owe the world? Owe one another nothing except what we owe is to love one another. For the love, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. And here are the good laws that should be established. We shall not commit adultery, we shall not murder, we shall not steal, we shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up under this in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I don't think these are two separate ideas. I don't know if you go back today. Go read Romans chapter 12. Do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult. That comes right before this teaching on how we submit to government, and it's followed by the reminder that the first two commands are to love God and to love neighbor. What does that mean? When we move out into the world, we have to ensure the first things are first. What are the first things? Loving God and loving neighbor. We have important issues within our country that could affect our country. We have values as Americans. What I said before is when we raise those values above loving God and loving neighbor, we distort our role, which means we always have to take even our, our documents, our constitution, and submit it to the Lordship of Christ. There are times where I need to obey Christ rather than the Constitution. There are times where I need to set aside the rights that people have died for, that I respect and I defend. And I have to set those things aside to love God and to love neighbor. As we engage in this political climate, and we're going to talk about this more next week, 
There are some questions we have to ask of every politician, of every policy, of every debate that we're listening to. When you hear a politician talk, often you've got to stop and say, how does this help me love God? How does this help me to love my neighbor? Who's the neighbor that I should be loving? And according to this politician, who's the neighbor I should suspect? All policies are calling you to love God, to love neighbor, and it's telling you, this is the neighbor you should love. This is the neighbor you shouldn't love. This is how you should love them. This is how you should not. As Christians, we have this central value, and we have to raise that up. And we've got to ask, what is this policy? Who is it calling me to love? Who is it calling me to suspect? And how does that reveal God? And how does that reveal his character in the world? We have a very simple scripture we can run these things through if we're willing to raise that up. And you know what that begins to do? It takes away all the arguments. Because I hear a lot of arguments. I don't always understand them all. Critical race theory, I've read about that. and I, Marxism and social. I, I get all that stuff's out there, guys. I'm, I'm not denying there's stuff out there. But, you know, when I'm, I'm dealing with racism, the first question I'm asking is, how do I need to love God right now? I'm not starting with politics. I'm not starting with a nation. I'm not starting with theories. I'm starting with a person. And often we're starting with persons within the church. The beautiful thing as a church is we get to start with us. And there are brothers, sisters in the church that have different perspectives on these realities. When I engage them, I've got to start, how do I love God right now? And how do I love my neighbor who is my brother? And in loving him, what does it look like to engage in his story? Not, not to validate and to say that, okay, this story is better than that, but rather, this is God's calling in the world. It's the calling for the church to move out into the world, not on the basis of politics or on the basis of rights, but rather on the basis of the kingdom, bringing about human flourishing as we represent Jesus Christ in the world. We have to raise those things up. And that means sometimes we have to wrestle. We, it's okay for us to disagree, isn't it? And, and not to yell at each other, I hope. It's okay for us to take some issues and say, hey, listen, I'm voting only for this reason and, and we can push back against that. I'm voting for this reason. We can push that back. Why? Because if we're seeking to glorify God and to wrestle with these realities, we should do that in a way that honors one another and honors God. So how do we apply this? Listen, there is a time, there's a time to subvert government. But I think according to scripture, it, it tends to be rare. Because if you notice in Romans 13, Paul doesn't address that. Now, it is addressed in other places. It's addressed, Jesus addresses it in different areas. Also in Acts chapter 25, when the apostles are preaching the gospel, and they said, we've told you, stop preaching in this name. Will you please stop, stop, stop? And they said, listen, guys, I respect you, but we must obey God rather than men. There's a great story in which uh, Paul was before the religious leaders, and he was angry. He was mad. And he slapped this guy in the face, right? He was, he was ticked. And the person turned, do you realize that's the high priest? Do you know what he did when he realized this was a per person of honor and respect, even the guy was mistreating him? He said, I am sorry. Paul did. He was being mistreated. He acted out of the flesh. I am sorry. I didn't recognize who you are. We show honor to whom honor is due. Paul recognized that. And imagine the impact for the gospel that brought in that moment. More than his words, it was his actions to love God and love others that revealed what he valued. So as we close, here's a couple things. Guys, uh, we need to pray. And that's not a token statement. We need to wrestle and pray. We need to cry out to the Lord. And when we're dealing with issues and challenges, we need to bring it to the Lord. 
We need to bring our constitution to the Lord. Lord, how do I obey? How do, how do I engage with the constitution right now? How do I obey? How do I follow my rights right now? You know, every season is different. You can't take 1776 and apply it to 2020. You can't even take 2016 and say, we're going to act the same way in 2016 that we do. The Spirit of God is at work. And God is looking for the humility of the church to surrender to him, to be guided into the season. Are we first loving God and are we willing to pray? And that means praying for our leaders, but it also means praying for us as we wrestle with the issues. Have we surrendered those issues to him? Do we constantly bring them back to him? And just because we held a position a year ago or two years ago, we need to continue to pray. Father, what are you saying to, what's the nuance? How, does, how do I need to see things differently? Because God's spirit is at work. And I don't know about you, my positions have shifted over the years. And there could be a shift that God is at work in you as well to take you in a different direction if you'll just surrender to him. So that's what I'd ask you to do. Church, let's pray for our leaders and let's pray for each other as we surrender him. But second, second, we should influence the government. We should use our voice to bring about human flourishing. If God has set up order and creation and government and family and church, we should be engaged and be involved. And you can see many examples of that over the years, many ways of doing it. We don't always get it right because when you're in that kind of conflict, it's hard, it's difficult. But when we're surrendering to the Lord, he brings about his result. We should engage. And then third, as citizens specifically of a democracy, there's a sense in which we are the government and we need to vote and we need to evaluate. Disengagement really isn't an option. If we value human flourishing, to disengage, guys, is not an option. Now, that looks like a lot of things for different people, but we need to press in. Why? Because that is the character of our God. And we need to sit in passages like Romans 12, and we need to sit in Luke 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, and we need when our hearts and our emotions kind of get stirred up, say, wait a minute, wait a minute, the banner right now? It's not Trump, it's not Biden, it's not Kanye, it's Jesus. Jesus, your Lord. And even if the result of this election is not what I want, he raises up kings, he takes kings down. Do not doubt that God is at work. And he could be at work to bring about the exact result that you're after, but through a path that doesn't make sense. How often does God direct countries, nations, us in ways I'm like, God, I want to go this way. We're not supposed to go that way. And yet if we're willing to trust him to engage and to love God and love neighbor, God directs us. Think of the Israelites, right? Did they go directly to the promised land? No. U-turns back and forth, 40 years wandering. Sometimes we wander to get to the promised land. And God is taken to a place where he wants to bring about good. He wants to bring about flourishing. But church, we have to be willing to love God first and to love our brother and engage in a way that reflects the gospel. This is the character of our God. Let me pray for us. Well, I just confess in this season, um, I thank you for the voices in the church. Lord, I, I pray that we would turn off the voices of the pundits and just listen to our brothers and sisters in Christ within the church. Those that want to honor you, that believe in the gospel, the supremacy of Christ, that believe in the word of God, that believe in the Holy Spirit. And yet on these issues, they wrestle. 
they come to different conclusions. And Father, we need to wrestle with why people come to the conclusions that they do. And then we need to surrender that to you. And so Father, would we shut out, in a sense, just the voices of the world or the voices of the news and start listening within the church to hear our brothers and sisters, to listen to a brother that may hold a different view, to understand it and yet to recognize we're unified in Christ and as we move out into the world to influence human flourishing and good. Father, we do it in a way that our conscience is clear because we've brought it before you. We've loved our brother. And Father, we're seeking for our country in this moment the good and the order that you desire to bring about. Father, guide us into this great truth. We love you and we love each other. In Jesus' name.